comes for free. Maybe the ads are just the price I have to pay. Right. And I think there needs to be a more critical interrogation of the idea that we get these services for free because, you know, advertising isn't free. We are paying with our data, which is what these marketers then collect and analyze and use to uh, reach us with their, their targeted pitches. And I think there are actually social costs that go far beyond just the kind of annoyance element of, you know, sort of these things in, in the side of my browser that I don't want to look at. And those elements are really important because the way that advertising used to work, it was much more straightforward, right? Something would come on the TV or the radio that interrupted the regularly scheduled programming and you could turn it off. But what happens is you can never turn off these systems of tracking online. I mean, and and this leads not just to, again, the annoying ads, but to things like price discrimination, because what, what one person sees on the web isn't what another person sees online. So I might get an ad that says, you know, Astra Taylor, enroll at this fancy college next year. But somebody else might get an ad that says, hey, enroll at this predatory for-profit college. Hmm. You know, there's real concerns about redlining, about people being offered different interest rates or different prices on goods that will kind of reinforce old social inequities. So again, it's not as simple as just seeing ads. There's also this question like, well, what kind of culture do advertisers want to support? Because you might say, okay, it seems like a fair trade-off now. I liked Facebook better before. But the question is, what direction is it heading in? And so we're seeing signs of that with things like the pay to promote. You know, it's getting harder and harder for groups to reach their their bases, the people that they've managed to connect with. You know, a community group might have 10,000 likes or something like that, but now it's only reaching a fraction of them uh, when it sends out a message. And on the other hand, it's interesting that now, a lot of us regard the internet and digital technology as this great democratizing force, you know, that gives everybody a platform to be heard, regardless of status. I mean, think about the Arab Spring or the recent democracy demonstrations in Hong Kong. That was something that really motivated me to take a more critical look, because I've got various sort of uh, sidelines. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I work as a journalist. But I also do a lot of organizing and activism. And so this issue of democracy really matters to me and people having a voice. And I was concerned about the fact that we are handing over so much power to these corporate platforms because the Internet, again, because there are very few non-commercial spaces online, uh, we confuse ourselves when we talk about it as a sort of public square. You know, when I go out and I protest in the streets, I have certain rights, mm -hmm. rights that cannot be impinged upon by the government. I have the right to assembly and free speech and stuff like that. And when you go onto these social media sites, you are agreeing to a terms of service and you're handing away a lot of those rights. So if those are kind of our agoras in the in the digital age, you know, there are, there are real concerns in terms of maintaining our, our freedom to protest and and our, our freedom to um, challenge people in power. Sure, but can't you do the same thing online? You can create a blog and put it up there, make a video and put it on YouTube. Yeah, the thing is that you, you can, but the, those sites ultimately can take anything you put up there down. And there have been some examples of uh, Middle East protesters putting up pictures of the documented violence onto a site like Flickr, wanting to spread the word and say, this is happening to us. And then Flickr took all of the photos down and said, well, you know, we don't allow pictures of violence on our site. And they were saying, well, these are political photographs documenting something really important. So it's just that, that sense that these spaces are not safe. Uh, we can't count on them in the same way because, again, they're private. I mean, I can't go and lead a protest in a shopping mall. 
right? Because that's not public space. That's private property. And these platforms are more like private property. They're more like shopping malls than they are like the things we like to compare them to. We like to say Google's a library or we like to say Twitter's a mm -hmm. town square. But there are major differences there. I feel like our analogies kind of confuse us. I feel like the question to me at a philosophical level is like, well, what would a real public square look like in the digital world? Like we don't, we don't have any real examples of that. And I think it would be kind of neat to get together and try to make those. It's really interesting hearing you say that because, you know, these same critiques were made of commercial television back in the dark ages. And it's kind of funny to think it was only, what, a few decades ago that NPR was created. Are you saying we need a, a public digital sphere? And then what would that yeah. look like? Right. I think we do need that. It's really interesting to go back to the history books and read about the evolution of public or non-commercial media in the United States. And we were pretty late on the bandwagon.